exactly clear There's a man with a gun over there Telling me I got to beware I think it's time we stop Children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down I'm C.J. Layton coming to you from inside the Phantom Radio Studios in Lake Wales, Florida home of the premier radio bowling talk show. Long ago, Bowlers Journal International called Phantom Radio a pioneer in the field of bowling podcasts because the show was regularly scheduled at the same time each week. The late Kegel owner, the great John Davis, told Len Nicholson to start this program because, quote, people need to know what you know, end quote. This PBA and bowling writer Hall of Famer has now recorded over 1,200 shows and has featured over 425 guests since 2002. 20 years plus of bowling knowledge, story sharing, and true expertise. Phantom, we need to know what you know. So Phantom fans, here's your host, Len Nicholson, the Phantom. Well, thank you, CJ. And a reminder that Phantom Radio is presented by the Kegel Company. Well, Phantom fans, for those of you that follow our show, you know that occasionally we pay tribute to those great bowlers from the past. And we usually get someone to help us with the tributes, and that person needs to know that legend very well. Well, this week is no exception. You have heard his extensive bio before, but it's important to know that this two-time PBA champion was also instrumental in helping to start the PBA regional program, and he started the PBA lane maintenance program. And if that isn't enough, he is also a world-class coach, being one of the very first certified gold coaches. And there's a lot more to talk about him, but let's get him out here. Hello, Sam Baca. How you doing, Bards? Oh, I'm having a good time. Get to hear you talk. I miss those conversations. <laughs> oh, boy, we had a lot of them. I used to call you almost every night to report the scores, and I'd wake you up at 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. And, uh, man, you were always very kind to me, and you taught me a lot, Bards, and I really appreciate that. But let's get right on with the show. So who are we going to pay tribute to this week, my friend? Uh, Billy Hardwick was a great buddy of mine, and I'd like to talk about him. Oh, my God. You know, Billy Hardwick, well, you know, nobody knows him better than you, except for maybe me. But uh, I trust you because I know you you met him earlier than you met me, I think. Anyway, we got tuned up together, and I grew up with him. So I'm going to let you go first. You know, I know what's going to happen. This show is going to run way too long. So can you come back again next week and, and have part two? Yeah, God willing, I'll be right here waiting for the call. Oh, fantastic. All right, Pards, if you recall, it's over 50 years ago, but where did you first meet Billy? Well, it, it came because uh, it started by me watching him. I was, uh, as you know, I at the, at the time I was working with uh, different resurfacers to learn what made the game tick. And I saw these scores that Billy was, producing out of a Belma tail bowl, I think it was. And um, so I ventured over there 
during their classic league to see, you know, this talented guy that was breaking records at the time with a full roller, which was a common release back then. But uh, in my opinion, at the time, I formulated that the game was heading towards a three-quarters type of release. It went spinner, full roller, and then a more a higher track uh, with a little tilt in it. So I went to watch what he was doing. Man, he was, in my opinion, one of the most accurate bowlers I've ever seen. But I fortunately walked up to him after a while and talked to him, tried to pick his brain. And what I found was that Billy was the persona of the touch bowler. He really didn't study the game, but he was very accurate. And back then, accuracy was uh, a gift, so to speak, because the surfaces weren't real good. But he could find a spot in the lane where the ball would be a little consistent and he could hit that spot. And uh, that made him the great champion that he was. Yeah, that's for sure. You know, you're right about Belmont Hill Bowl. That's where he bowled. And uh, he started there, just like everybody else, just throwing the ball down the middle. And then he got better and better. And, you know, I played all the sports. And what happened was when they opened the bowl, uh, they had a notice out there. The bowl's going to open up in three weeks. So all juniors can come in here and bowl free. Well, that was something new in the area. I was like 15. Billy was 14. So when they opened the bowl, I went in there, and the coach was taking our names and address and phone numbers, and then they called you up during the week and says, come on back. We're going to start a junior league. So I went in, and uh, they put me on a junior league, doubles team, and they put me with Billy. And I never really figured out or found out why, but the only thing I could think was, I was the biggest guy in the junior class, and, and Billy was the smallest. He, I was about 5'11", 170 pounds. He was 5'3", 99 pounds. So we were some kind of a sight. We both averaged about 149 the first year, but then he kept at it. and He wanted to be the best in the bowling center, and the best guy there at the time was a PBA member named Ev Collins, he eventually passed Ev, and then he went on the tour. But I think Billy went on the tour in 62. That might have been before you, right? Yeah, yeah. He went out the year before I went out, I think. Okay, yeah. He went out 62. I knew that. And he didn't do anything. Then the next year, he came home. He says, what are you going to do now? He says, I'm going to work on my game and go back out there and beat those guys. And we all thought he was crazy. And sure enough, he was bowler of the year in 63, which was a miracle. But I'm sure you got to know him a lot better than that, right? Oh, yeah. Well, what happened was um, a couple of years after I, my, I saw Billy and the and the local guys there, there was a lot of uh, high scores coming out of there. So one day I finally went down there to practice, and I realized that the game on the Bay side, um, San Francisco side of the Bay was way advanced over a holiday bowl where I developed. Now, the pins were lighter. All of a sudden, I'm knocking pins all over the place that I couldn't do in my home center. And uh, naturally, you know, I hustled for a few years. But when I broke into the area, which was around 62, I, I started bowling the classic things in the area. I met, you know, uh, guys like Don Carter and Weber and all the 4th of July classic and Sports Center uh, classic. And I uh, I got to talk to Billy. And, you know, uh, I saw his game. And at that time, I was pretty advanced on what I knew. So Billy went out 
And I knew him when we got together one day at one of the local tournaments after he had not been successful. He said that started talking about problems out there. And I, I asked him, I said, what do you think was the most successful party? He said, well, it was when I was here, but it was a small company. I can't remember the name of Ripley, I think was the ball. Yeah, and, uh, and uh, he had a Ripley ball, which was made overseas, and it was all rubber, not like the uh, Americans that had cork in the inside. That ball didn't work out there, huh? And he says, oh, no, I didn't sign with them. They wouldn't sign me for what I wanted. I said, so you put the ball away? And he said, yeah. So, you know, remember Teeterman? Yeah. So I saw Teeterman, and he had gone back out. He was um, – I think in Oklahoma City at the time, or one of those stops. And uh, I told Cedarman, why why can't you talk him into throwing that ball? I mean, he was successful with it. It's really a, a strong ball compared to everything else. So Teeterman shipped it to him, and the last block in whatever Midwestern state it was, I can't remember exactly, Billy used the ball and involved one hell of a record uh, in his last block to make the finals. I think he finished third. And after that, he started using the ball all the time. In later years, we you know, he signed with the uh, AMF, and he had a rocky year. And at that time, Brunswick had an old bowling ball. And I talked him into using the ball. I said, you know, you're not successful with that structure. Go to something that was similar to that Ripley ball, which happened to be an old Brunswick ball. And he went on to win even more tournaments. He was, you know, but his accuracy – Dependent a combination of that ball getting up on its axis and, and, and striking. When he used these other balls with a, a weaker structure, he didn't have the same carry power. But that was my, my little technical help for uh, Billy. You know, Billy was trusted his talent, but he didn't trust science, let's say. And, <laughs> you know, he was champagne Billy Hardwick. You know, he had that reputation, and uh, it was true. He was... He was a celebrity in his own right uh, during that era. Well, he sure was, and that was some era. You know, I I didn't come on the scene till after I met you in '71, but you know, in the '60s and '70s, no question, uh, that was the golden age of bowling. You know, like you said, Carter Weber, Strampy, Sutar, Harry Smith. You know, all yeah. them great, great players, and uh, you know we. We got a little deal going with Glenn Allison, and I don't want to talk too much about Glenn, but uh, he asked me to do a little favor for him, and he bought a little time on our show to do a little advertisement for him. But I got a special announcement, so I want everybody to get their pens and pencil ready. Here's a chance to get a -a one-of-a-kind souvenir. It's a brand-new Glenn Allison 900 shirt and enjoy a discount from Phantom Radio. Well, this 900 shirt has an image of Glenn on it, and it says 900. I did it. So call his friend and manager, another guy you know, Sam, uh, Jerry Hale. He's taking care of a lot of Glenn's business. And to order this shirt, call Jerry at 714-309-7587 and be the first in your area to get this historic souvenir shirt. So call Jerry at 714 714- 309-7587. Have a great day, and be sure to mention Phantom Radio for your discount. So, Sam, let's just take a moment and, and give me your reflection 
on Glenn Allison for a minute, okay? Oh, yeah, Glenn was, uh, I, I was fortunate enough to um, MC a couple. When Waylo, uh, Billy Waylo uh, couldn't make it to one of their exhibitions, he asked me to uh, do the MC. I got to know Glenn and the a whole group there. We did a couple of uh, upstate New York exhibitions with them. I believe it was either the Budweiser. Uh, no, it was a Falstaff team, I believe. And yeah. uh, so uh, I got to know Glenn pretty well. Matter of fact, uh, I was, uh, when they had the controversy over his 900, I offered to be the uh, expert witness if they ended up going to court or whatever was going to happen. All around, kind of quiet, but a dominating bowler. You know what I mean? He was... Uh, he didn't do a lot of um, talking. Matter of fact, during uh, when he was accepted into uh, the PBA uh, Hall of Fame at the executive board, I I read his statement for him because he didn't want to be. He didn't like to do the conversation part, <laughs> and it, it was a really um, extraordinary um, uh, accuracy bowler himself, and he could play all angles. He was, you know, uh, he wasn't. He was colorful in style, but he wasn't—he wasn't a champagne Billy Hardwick type. All right. Well, we can do ten shows about Glenn Allison too. But let me mention his buddy, uh, Jerry Hale. I'm sure you knew Jerry because Jerry was from the Bay Area too. Oh yeah, we had many. many we in the Bay Area pot games. We uh, we had a lot of head-to-head and and uh, you know action bowling. And he was a real strong competitor. He was a full roller, too. Matter of fact, we had a local championship. Uh, I think it was in Stockton where we both made the show, and I was lucky enough to to win it, you know, the championship round. Jerry was a, a very colorful as far as, you know, his style, but he uh, he was like me. He spent too much time in the bar. <laughs> Oh, God. All right. Well, I'll be talking to both those guys in the next couple of weeks, so I'll be sure to pass along your your memories. And uh, I know it was a good time back in the old days, but let's jump ahead to when uh, Billy eventually moved to Louisville uh, to become uh, more centrally located uh, so he could go home in between tournaments as opposed to going all the way back to the West Coast. And, and you ended up Going back there with him for a while, right? Yeah, well, uh, I don't I remember which marriage it was that he was in, but when he was in Louisville, uh, well, but he he had uh, desires of uh, business m- movement, and uh, matter of fact, he had um, Jerry Teterman send me money so I could come out there because we had talked about maybe when he was centrally locating, he was going to open up a pro shop. And so he sent me the money to move to Louisville and end up staying with Billy, along with a lot of other guys. We were going to um, locate there. Unfortunately, uh, things didn't work out for Billy there, and he moved on, I believe, to Memphis, or I don't know where he moved to after that. But he, I, I, I think I spent six months there, and then I went to work for the PBA. Uh, after we decided the pro shop thing wasn't going to work, but that was a lot of fun. It was, uh, we had a basement full of beer and we enjoyed the hell out of it. <laughs> well, if you couldn't have fun with Billy, you couldn't have fun anywhere, but 
Yeah, I remember those days because, as a matter of fact, I went through a divorce myself, and I didn't know what I was going to do. He says, well, come back here and live with me. He said, I'll get you a job at the bowling alley. So I did. Being centrally located, uh, the guys would crisscross across the country. A lot of times, they'd stop off at Billy's. And like you said, he had a, a basement full of beer because he won that commercial. He did that commercial with Miller. And they'd bring a truckload of beer in the garage. And, and all you guys would show up on a weekend now and then. You'd have barbecues and parties. And we'd play cards. And it was a great time. Some of the guys even brought their families. And I'll never forget one night uh, we're playing cards. And everybody's been liquored up pretty much all day. And they get in arguments. The lefties and the righties are arguing. I'm seeing guys, I have to break up a couple fights. You know, Godman would tell Dave Davis, if you were left-handed, you could never beat me. And he would go back and forth. The same thing with Burton and Gerhardt. And guys were getting in arguments and pushing each other. And I, I went to you and I said, Sam, why are these guys, you know, they're friendly all day. Then at night when they have a couple of beers, he goes, oh, it's all about lane conditions. You know, they get a little bit mad about lefties, righties. I go, what's all that? He says, well, you're working at the bowling alley. He says, learn all you can because someday we're going to probably start a lane maintenance uh, thing on the tour. And he says, I'll probably go in advance and check everything out. And I'll need somebody in the back uh, doing the lanes every day. So, you know, sure enough, as usual, you were right predicting the future. A couple of years later, we did start the program. But then I found all about lane conditions. Uh, I'll tell you what, that was an exciting job, Pards. You were always well ahead of the thing. and I, I, I love to tell this story, and I want to do it here. We did about four or five tournaments, and Harry Golden, the tournament director, came to me, and he says, get Sam back out here. We have to have a meeting. All right. So I called you up, and I said, Sam, they want to see you at the tournament committee. And you said, well, what's the matter? And I said, I don't know. I said, I think we're going to get a raise because – Everything's so good. There's no complaints. Everything's fine. And so anyway, you flew in. I picked up at the airport. And you said, you find out about the meeting? I says, no. we got to be there at the tournament committee meeting on Tuesday. So we showed up. And Harry Golden had all the guys in there. There were like 17 guys, all the top guys on the tour, beyond the Lillo and Pappas and Hardwick and Weber, all the guys. And so they had old business new business, and then a special time, lane condition. So they called you up, and you went up, and you said, yeah, fellas, uh, what can I do for you? And nobody would say anything, because they didn't have anybody really in charge of it, but they're all looking around. And uh, finally, Dick Richards stood up, and he goes, Sam, you know I don't complain. He says, but i got to ask you a question. All right, what's up, Dick? He goes, why do we have to play the same place every week? <laughs> so... The funny part was they complained every week about something before we took over, and all they did was beg, give us a shot. Well, when me and you came along, we gave them a shot, but again, they didn't like to play the second hour every week, and you looked at me, and you winked, and I thought, wow, Sam knows exactly what he's talking about. That was that was the funniest thing I ever seen as far as my job went, but you remember those days, Sparks? Oh, yeah. They were fun. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I, so, I remember I, I told you, well, when you take the job, remember one thing. There's only one guy that's going to be happy, the guy that wins the tournament, 
and he's going to say, I bowled great. He's not going to say the lanes were great. <laughs> yeah, that was the one mistake that the PBA made. Uh, they never had a lane maintenance program before, so they figured a way to, to make it work. And they would charge everybody five bucks extra for lane maintenance. There was like 160 guys out there every week. And five bucks was like $800 that they'd take in. But to have two guys on the road, motels, airfare, that wasn't near enough. But the problem was now by five bucks, they all thought they had a shot because they paid five bucks. And you know yourself, 160 pro bowlers, there was only about 50 of them that could win. So that means there was about 100 guys that were going to be upset no matter what. So that was one of the problems by having a lane maintenance fee as far as I was concerned. But it was an exciting time, man. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Belly was one of those guys that uh, thought that the lane maintenance hurt his game. I, I, you know, later years when I talked to him after, you know, he wasn't on the tour anymore, he told me. Yeah, you know, I did a little complaining, he says, but I could see after I left that the full roller and the type of release and the type of game that I had was in jeopardy just because of equipment and, uh, you know, the change in the surfaces on the lanes. So he, like anybody else, he was trying to protect his future uh, in in the game by saying that, uh, that the lane conditions, but really it was wasn't the oil patterns that had everything to do with synthetic lanes and fireproof finishes and new weight blocks and all that that, you know, lent towards uh, the basic uh, downfall, let's say, of the track bowlers, uh, you know, the Bill Gombieskis and Hoover and all the guys that threw full rollers. All of a sudden, their dominance was gone. Same thing with spinners, you know, both those things could hold the track and uh, work well on uh, uh, less volumes of oil. So as the game changed, it changed the champions. Oh, yeah. He, in fact, you know, we were best of friends, and every week when he was in a slump there for a long time, he would always blame me, and he'd say, you know, I get you guys a job, and you send me home. You know, what kind of friends are you? You know, blame, <laughs> blaming us all the time. And then after he retired, and, uh, you know, core heads uh, became about, he admitted that, uh, you know, he, in 1969, he was bowler of the year. In 1970, he signed a contract with AMF, and he still bowled good that year, but it was a carryover from how great he had bowled in 69. But in 71, it just so happened, we took over doing the lanes, and that ball that Billy had to use for AMF uh, nobody bowled good on the AMF staff. We looked it all up. Nah, Redker went down the tubes. Uh, McGrath didn't bowl that good. Brought, uh, Donnie Russell, who was a great rookie, he didn't do nothing. A lot of guys on the AMF staff couldn't break an egg. So it was probably the ball because he bowled great with the Ripley, and he didn't have that anymore. But anyway, Pards, uh, I'm looking at the old clock in the wall. We got a couple of minutes left. You got a funny story? Maybe saved up. I know you got a bunch of stories. You may not be able to tell them all on the radio, but I'm sure you got one about Billy that we can tell before we go. Oh, well, uh, I think you mentioned that he won uh, Miller High Life. Well, me and uh, Glover, and he is a left-hander, and Glover was always uh, 
a little bit of a hothead. They liked to, you know, he was a wrestling champ in uh, California for, you know, when he was a young guy. I did a little boxing, and uh, when I was going to San Jose State, I had to hit him in the nose, and he'd, uh, <laughs> anyway, one night uh, during the tournament, Billy's leading the tournament, and, and Glover made the finals, but he doesn't make the show, and me and him got into a tussle, pretty pretty wild one. We had, uh, he had been drinking, and the night, that night, and he came in full of uh, piss and vinegar, and we got into it. Pretty soon we were punching each other and he's trying to wrestle me down. I'm hitting him in the nose. We're knocking lamps over. Matter of fact, uh, we ended up going through the window out into the snow. And uh, when we finally settled down, you know, and laughed about what just happened, we're looking for Billy and we can't find him. He's not in the room. Finally, Billy, Billy, we heard, don't you guys come in here. He was in the bathroom. He said, I'm not going to get hurt. I'm leading the tournament. <laughs> he was staying out of the fray. <laughs> oh, that's great. All right, listen, so you already promised you'd come back next week, so I'll call you same time, same bad channel, and we'll do part two about Billy. Um, I don't know. We might have to do four or five shows, but we'll do another one next week, Barnes. Is that all right with you? Hey, I look forward to it. So do I, my friends. Uh, good job. So, Phantom fans, I can't believe how quickly the time flies on the show. And it's probably why they say it's the fastest show in all of sports. But I can't wait till next week when we get Sam Baca back on here again. want to thank our sponsors, Storm Bowling, uh, Brad Edelman from the High Roller, and also Dave Kowalski. He's a former president of the Coaches Association of the Junior Bowlers in Michigan. And they got 7,000 junior bowlers up there. So for Phantom Radio, thanks, Sam. Talk to you next week. This is the Phantom. When you're down and troubled And you need some love and care And nothing, well, nothing is going right Close your eyes and think of me And soon I